Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Uh, we've been talking about the Best Picture nominees lately, and uh, we are going to finish today by talking about uh, the two we have left, which is Parasite, that's Bong Joon-ho's movie about class warfare in South Korea, and Jojo Rabbit, the uh, most adorable, feel-good Holocaust movie of the year. And we're also <laughs> going to get to our picks for what we think is going to win Best Picture and what we would like to see win Best Picture. Welcome to Film Club. Oscars edition. So Alex, Parasite, it was my number one film of the year. Mm -hmm. I think it is a five star A. I really can't think of much about this film that I would even criticize. I think it's just a wonderful achievement. And I am not alone in that. It has been a huge favorite crossing over into America in a way that is unusual for a South Korean film in a bigger yeah. way. And it's got tons of fans. Everybody from the Khan jury to the Bong Hive on Twitter are fans of Parasite. That's Bong Joon-ho, a South Korean filmmaker mm -hmm. known for The Host, his giant monster movie. Yep. Um, he also and made Snowpiercer mm -hmm. and Mother and Memories of Murder. Very popular filmmaker, but this kind of, I think, took him to kind of a new level. Yeah, like he's been a fixture on the international film festival scene for a long time. And The Host was a minor hit when it came mm -hmm. out in the early 2000s. There was a big wave of Korean cinema coming out around that time. Mm -hmm. But it was not as big of a phenomenon as Parasite is. Yeah, I mean, Parasite has made a decent amount of money here. And, and again, the critics have rallied around it as well. I think it might actually be close to the critical favorite of the year if you look mm -hmm. at the consensus, maybe just below The Irishman. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of it as well. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, well, I don't have a lot negative to say about Parasite, honestly. I mean, the first time I saw it, I thought it was great, and then I saw it again, and I was like, wow, I think this might be a perfect movie. Because, <laughs> I don't know about that, well, but okay. it's very good. <laughs> it, it's up there. Okay, you're right. You should never say anything is perfect. It really hits on all these different levels. You know, like some films are entertaining, but they don't have a lot to say. Mm -hmm. Some films have a lot to say, but they're kind of a slog to sit through. Parasite is very entertaining and also has a lot of really insightful, incisive commentary about capitalism and late capitalism sure. and class warfare, themes that are very, very relevant now, you know, in South Korea and in America and the whole world, you know? Which I think is partially key to why it's been so successful here is mm -hmm. that the issues of class warfare that this film is getting into are not exclusive to South Korea. The film follows the two families, the Kims, who are very poor. They live together in a cramped basement apartment. And in the film's opening scene, which I find very charming, all the members of the family are going around the apartment holding their phones up like this in different corners trying to find Wi-Fi that they can totally. steal. So they basically are, are sort of scraping by a living. They do odd jobs. Um, they get sort of temporary work. And one day their train sort of comes in, which is the son of the family finds out that there is this wealthy family, basically the Parks, mm -hmm. uh, whose daughter needs a new tutor. Um, and he sort of has to fudge his resume a little bit to pretend that he has the college education. Right. And what he immediately sort of discovers is that that this family is not only rich, but pretty gullible <laughs> and pretty vulnerable to scams. And flattery. And flattery. So the Kims basically find a way to kind of work their way onto the park's payroll. They find positions for each of them in the household. Mm -hmm. And for a little while, the movie almost plays like a heist film. Oh, totally. Because um, yeah. we're sort of seeing them they build these scams, and Bong is cutting back and forth from the planning of their schemes to the execution of them. And it's great fun for a while. I think it's very fun to watch them essentially turn this wealthy family into job creators for them. <laughs> you know, And we're sort of immediately on their side because they're impoverished, and sure. well, they, they need the work. <laughs> you know, They need the money. Yeah, well, and 
I think what's interesting about it too is the film does play with loyalties like that. Mm -hmm. You can kind of go back and forth and different people seeing the film are going to interpret it in different ways about who is the parasite. Like you were saying, the film is sympathetic with the Kims. It's like, no, they really need this money and they're going to do whatever they have to do. But also the Parks, the rich family, they're not overtly mean. They're not abusive to the staff. They're not cartoon monsters. No, they're not. They're just really oblivious to the fact. Blinkered and condescending in a lot of ways. Exactly. And they don't seem to realize that their pampered, whimsical lifestyle is coming at the expense of all these people's work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, And the Kims as well are not painted as cartoon saints either. Right. And so one of Wong Bong's things too as a filmmaker is that he's kind of a genre commitment phobe. You know, his his movies (laughs) will often blend some very different genres. The host was my first exposure to Mm -hmm. him. And I remember just being blown away by how graceful a mixture of comedy, Mm -hmm. of science fiction, of horror, of family drama, it was. Yeah. And that's true to some extent with this film too. In fact, when you first hear the title, you think, oh, has he made another science fiction film? Oh, sure. Totally. You know? yeah. yeah. I would say that there is one through line through all of his work because you're right. He likes to jump around in different genres. Mm-hmm. He usually works within a vaguely genre space, but he won't commit to anyone, like you said. Mm-hmm. But the through line in his work is Hitchcock, yeah. and that sort of Hitchcockian plot maneuverings is consistent throughout all of his films. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, sort of the complications and his use exactly. of suspense as well. So we won't spoil where Parasite goes today, but you sort of feel like you have a handle on it for a while, Uh and then at a certain point it starts adding, we'll say layers? Layers. (laughs) I'll say layers. I think that everything that you can talk about about the movie in terms of themes does apply all throughout the entire length of it. It doesn't turn into a completely different movie, but it does, the plot thickens, and the theme deepens as it goes on. I feel like the most you could say is the kind of setup we've been talking about is only the first part. And I I do think that the film, ultimately, what it's really about is the way that capitalism pits desperate people Mm -hmm. against each other. Mm -hmm. It's about the idea that capitalism creates a zero-sum game for you could say that the 99%. And it's interesting the way he does this tonally because as we were talking about, the Kims replace the old staff in the Parks household and they're poor people too. Right. You know, they need these jobs too. And Bong presents it in this sort of like madcap style. Like mm-hmm. it's, they have these kind of humorous schemes as to how they get them out of the job. But really, you know, he's presenting this serious, even kind of fucked up idea in a very madcap way, which is fun. Oh, 100%, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down a little bit. Um, Although I also think that that whole aspect of it feeds into his point about class, too, Mm -hmm. and I think that for a long time we are sort of just enjoying the fun of them getting one over on this rich family, and then the film deepens our understanding of what the cost of that is for for other people. And in some ways the metaphors can be a little literal, but I don't even mind because they're expressed in such a surprising way that it sort of transcends any sort of cliche, I think. And the cast is awesome. They won a SAG award for best ensemble led Mm -hmm. by uh, Song Kang Ho, who is Bong's longest collaborator, but in his movies since the early 90s. He doesn't always play the lead, but he's always in the film. And then Park So Dam plays the daughter of the Kim family, Jessica, and she's great. 
was a, someone who I think has been laid out as someone who should have been more in the awards conversation this year. I think I, th I think it's very difficult for actors speaking in a foreign language to mm -hmm. get Oscar nominations. Yeah. I think that a lot of the people doing the voting find it difficult to assess performances that are not in English. Mm. And I think there's also a certain cultural bias towards actors uh, who, are, who are speaking a foreign language as well. I mean, sure, but they don't seem to have this problem with no. French actors, is I guess what I'll have to say about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I do think that, yes, I mean, I do think there's, it's Anglo-centric as well. Mm -hmm. uh, although, I mean, again, French actors don't get in that often either. I don't support it, Dowd. I don't agree, because <laughs> well, I'm not supporting it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not, and I'm just formally registering my objections to that line yeah. of logic, because when you're watching a film, tone of voice still comes across, expressions and body language still come across, 90% of it still comes across. Yeah. And Bong, he's been just a really fun presence on the awards circuit this year. Like, at the yeah. Golden Globes, he gave a speech in which he said, if Americans can get past the one-inch barrier of subtitles, a whole new world of films is going to open up to them. Yeah. I wonder about the film's politics and how much they're getting through to people. Mm. If you have somebody like Elon Musk, no. who's saying he loved Parasite, is the message of this film getting through to him? Or I, I've heard some people suggest that this is a movie that, if seen through the right blinkered lens, could be mistaken for saying, don't trust the help. Well, yeah, I mean, you could, if you were a similar sort of oblivious wealthy person, watch this movie and be like, oh, the poor parks are being victimized. Right. You could see them as the victims of the story. But I think that's one of the things that makes it so intelligent, is that it does shift so much. And I don't think it negates Bong's point. I think it actually enhances his point that rich people can be so oblivious that they can watch Parasite and take that away from it. So I remember when this, this movie was first announced. Right. Uh, so we're talking about Jojo Rabbit today. It's uh, Taika Waititi's movie about Nazi Germany mm -hmm. and uh, about a young boy who is uh, in the Hitler Youth and the crisis of conscience he goes through right. eventually. You know, he's in this bubble of Nazism and then he realizes. Right, as many people in Nazi Germany were, mm -hmm. of course. Um, so when the film was announced, uh, it was announced that he was making a satire about Nazi Germany right. and that he was going to be playing Hitler in it. Right. And uh, it was this sort of immediate source of controversy. Sure. And Disney was uh, ex publicly expressing some trepidation about releasing a film with this premise. Mm -hmm. um, having now seen the movie, it's hard for me to imagine it, this movie being a source of controversy at all. Well, the funny thing is it's not the first movie to take this kind of approach. It didn't really translate over here to the U.S., but there was a novel and a movie called He's Back in Germany, mm. and the premise is that Hitler just, like, shows back up in modern-day Germany. And so that was a uh, more incisive satire than Jojo Rabbit, actually. Well, I mean, people have been making fun of Hitler since Hitler was alive. Yeah, true. You know? yeah. And, and the question of is it possible to satirize the Nazis and is it possible to satirize Hitler, how tasteful is that? Those, mm -hmm. those kind of questions we've been asking that since World War II. Yeah. Um, and I, I watched this thing and I think that this is a movie that um, it, it, it came into this world as, as such a, a hot topic of conversation, of controversy, but I think it's one that's actually pretty safe in a lot of ways. Yeah, I very much agree. I was very excited for this film because I normally love Taika Waititi's work. I love his sense of humor and everything, but I don't think that his sense of humor really translated to this film all that much. I think all the satire is very basic. It's sub-SNL, har-har, look, this... Nazis farting, just kind of <laughs> childish stuff. And, I, and I've and i heard people from the film say like, oh, well, the point is that it's just one big fart joke. But in execution, it just didn't feel insightful. 
Uh, so Watiti, we, we should we should mention who, uh, sure. who he is for those who don't know. He's a New Zealand writer director, a comedian. He worked on Flight of the Concords. Mm -hmm. uh, he his feature debut was What We Do in the Shadows, one of my favorite films of the last decade. It's one very of my funny. Favorite comedies. I love yeah. that movie. It's a mockumentary about vampires mm -hmm. living together who are roommates. Like that movie was sharper than Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> oh yeah, cer certainly funnier. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, and he went on from there to make Hunt for the Wilder People, mm -hmm. um, which is cute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he made kind of a, a big leap into studio filmmaking with, he did he did the third Thor film, yeah, Thor Ragnarok, Ragnarok, which I quite enjoy. As far as the Marvel films go, I think that yeah. one has a very pronounced sense of humor. It's um, one of the ones I watched. <clears throat> <laughs> okay. um, I didn't follow all of it, but I liked it. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't hate the idea of him tackling the subject matter necessarily, but to me, right. what Jojo, Jojo Rabbit strikes me as uh, it, it's not a surprise to me that it's up for multiple Oscars because to me it strikes me as actually a fairly conventional and fairly safe Holocaust drama of the yeah. type that we, we've we've been seeing since, uh, well, at least since Schindler's List sort of popularized I was gonna that say, genre. It is, it is such a 90s genre. Yeah. You I know, mean, it, and it's like, like leading up to like life is beautiful. Something like the boy in the striped pajamas or something, you know? I mean, <laughs> basically, if you took out the jokes from this film, if you took out all his his sense of humor, and I know some would say that well, you can't really do that with a comedy. But if like if you removed his sensibility, this thing would conform to the template of a best foreign language Oscar winner. Oh, one hundred percent. If you took out the comedy, this would have been a '90s Miramax release. The trailer would have played before Shakespeare in Love on the yeah. VHS. Like a hundred percent. So for the first thirty minutes or something, this thing is 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 pretty goofball and zany. Yeah. You know, I mean, he like goes to like a. A summer camp that's right. sort of a sort of Wes Anderson-ish uh, summer camp where there's these doltish yeah. Nazis played yeah, 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 by yeah. Rebel Wilson. Wes Anderson, but make it fascist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and Sam Rockwell's there doing sort of droll, sardonic, dumb Nazi shtick, you know. Yeah. But the movie's plot doesn't really kick in until maybe maybe a half an hour in, mm -hmm. where our young character Jojo dis discovers in his attic that his mother, played by Scarlett Johansson, mm -hmm. who's sort of like the the wokest. Housefrau of 1945. Yes. Or something, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, there were. Basically has like Elizabeth Warren's politics, <laughs> but in 1945. There were, you know, resistors within Germany. That's true. There were. There, yeah. there absolutely were. Um, but so he discovers that his mother uh, has been housing a, a Jewish teenager, mm -hmm. uh, played by Thomas A. McKenzie from Leave No Trace. And the film becomes about this kind of, this budding friendship between the two of them and how that complicates his position as somebody who's right. pro-Hitler. I was gonna say, um, do you think it would challenge some of his preconceived notions <laughs> to actually meet a Jewish person in real life? We right. shall see. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and in many respects, I feel like that plot could come out of a thousand other Holocaust dramas. Oh, 100%. The argument you can make for it is that the comedy um, sort of punches this up a little bit and, and that it makes it feel different and, and uh, but I, I don't know how well they gel, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't think that the two gel very well at all. I think that they are kind of two different things side by side in the same movie and sort of with the hopes that one will one will legitimize the other in mm -hmm. a way, but but they're not connected in any significant way, and so it does just feel like two ideas in one, and neither one of them, like it's not an especially incisive satire, as I mentioned before, and it's not an especially moving drama either, yeah. because it is so typical, like you said. 
Uh, and, you know, I mean, quite literally, his sensibility has been grafted onto this. It's based on a novel called Caging Skies. Right. I haven't read the novel, but my understanding is that there is a touch of comic sensibility to it, but mm -hmm. it's much less pronounced than what, okay. than what Taika Waititi brings to it. Uh -huh. One of the big hooks is that our young character, he's, uh, he's a young boy who's, who's in the Hitler Youth. He really loves the pageantry of it. That's sort of what draws him to it. Uh, he has an imaginary friend. His imaginary friend is Hitler, mm -hmm. played by Waititi himself. Yeah, and in, um, in a very, like, big, goofy, broad performance, which is one of the yeah. things I liked the most about this movie, sure. is, is how how he, he plays Hitler sort of as like, like in like if you were watching a children's cartoon and a kid had a friend who was an imaginary bear, that's kind of how he plays Hitler. <laughs> I think he's kind of, what he's kind of doing is he's like an anachronistic like millennial gossip or something. Oh! <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can't take credit for this. Somebody described him as a mean girl. Oh, that's, that's funny. kind of what he's doing as Hitler. Yeah. And that shtick, I mean, I, I laughed a couple times at it, uh, but I think it's also pretty one note. Right. Um, it worked for me at first, but yeah, yeah, it's one note, as most of the satire in this film is. It's yeah. very one note. Um, and there's just some aspects of it that, like, struck me as childish in a way that I felt like was disappointing yeah. because I know that everyone involved is capable of much sharper stuff. You mentioned all with TD's film work, which I mostly enjoy, but I also really like his TV work. He's directed mm -hmm. some episodes of the What We Do in the Shadows TV show, which is great. Mm -hmm. And he directed the season finale of The Mandalorian, which was excellent. Okay. So I just don't feel like he, I don't know if it's in some sort of bid for awards prestige, or you have to do it this way if you want it to be a quote unquote serious film. But I just feel as though maybe it's adapting someone else's uh, material, but I just felt as though he really, he kind of dumbed himself down for this one. I'm not bothered by the comedy in it. I think mm. the comedy is fine. I, I think the real issue for me with this film is that uh, I, I think it, it kind of lets Nazis off the hook. I mean, this is a film that kind of bends over backwards to make all of them look uh, buffoonish, mm -hmm. um, which many of them surely were. Sure. Actual buffoons. But it bends over backwards to forgive some of them. There, mm. are, there are various characters in this yeah. film that are Nazis, and I feel like you can count on one hand the number of characters in this film, a film, again, about Nazi Germany, who are actually uh, malicious. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, characters. Sinister. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen yeah. Merchant's character is sinister, but he kind of shows up halfway through. Right. Yeah. Right. But even he, I mean, he's he's kind of a goofy Monty Python caricature of a character. And again, that's the comic framework of the film. Sure. I understand that. And some would say that you diminish the power of fascism by making them look as ridiculous sure. as they are. But then you look at something like Black Klansman that does mm -hmm. a really, really good job. That's Spike Lee's film. That is a film that really strikes that balance very well of being like... The KKK are buffoons. These right. are these are idiots. Right. But they're dangerous too. Yes. They're dangerous. And it's not like Jojo Rabbit denies violence. There is some real violence in the film and not every character in this movie walks out alive. But the movie seems to bend over backwards to basically uh, almost portray the entire country as this is a country that got swept up in this fever and even people who are part of the party, who are part of the Nazi party, are just kind of well-meaning idiots who uh, who got roped into this. So, I mean, we've had a lot of movies about um, about how horrible the Holocaust was and about horrible Nazis are. <laughs> um, maybe it's okay that we have one that's a softer depiction, but I don't know. I mean, I think this thing wants to be relevant to what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. We're seeing uh, a kind of a new rise of, of 
fascist groups. Yeah, um, all over the world. Nazis are back, you know, mm -hmm. maybe they never left, but they're back in the spotlight. And I think that uh, you're right that we can't really hold it against Taika Waititi that the movie is being advertised as an anti-hate satire. It's barely a satire. I mean, I mean, satire provokes, and I don't think this thing is interested in provoking. No. This is a movie about Nazism that uh, an actual Nazi could sit down and watch and not feel offended by. Okay, Katie, so today we talked about Parasite. That's Bong Joon-ho's movie. Yay. We also talked about Jojo Rabbit. Taika Waititi's <laughs> Nazi satire, mm -hmm. sort of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those are two of this year's Best Picture nominees. There yep. are nine of them. Yep. Um, do you think you can name the rest? All right, I'm going to try. Okay, so we mentioned Parasite. We mentioned Jojo Rabbit. There is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm -hmm. The Irishman, Joker, Ford versus Ferrari, Little Women... Marriage Story, and shit, which one did I not mention? 1917. 1917, I forgot <laughs> it already, oh yep. my God. <laughs> so those are your nine nominees. Um, we, we've done episodes on all of them at this point. Uh, if, if you listen to the podcast, mm -hmm. you can find those paired th throughout yeah. the, the last couple weeks. Yeah, the ones that came out later in the fall after we started shooting for a listener reference. Uh, so like Marriage Story and The Irishman were an episode that we did together yep. back in the fall. Yep, Little right. Women too yep. we did back in the fall. Yep, and we I think we believe we paired 1917 with Doolittle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we've talked about all That was an interesting episode. It was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've talked about them all now. Um, the Oscars are this Sunday. Yep. Uh, let me ask you, what do you think is gonna win Best Picture? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm calling it. Okay, tell me why. Because Oscar voters love movies about movies. Mm -hmm. And it's a big production from a known name, and it's been doing pretty well uh, across the spread of different awards. That's true. It has been doing pretty well. I do think it's lost a little momentum. Mm. Um, I don't think it's picked up any of the major guilds mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, it did not win the SAG, uh, for example, lost to Parasite. No, it didn't, and I was honestly pleased with that. I, 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 lo I like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a lot. But Parasite We was, prefer Parasite. Well, yeah, and it was just like a refreshing change. I believe yeah. it was the first South Korean ensemble to win that award. Sure. So it was just a refreshing change there. It did win a production design guild award, mm -hmm. but I don't know if you'd call it a major guild. Yeah, I mean, it has won, it has won plenty of awards. Mm -hmm. Brad Pitt is probably going to win Supporting oh, Actor. Yeah, it's almost sewed up, even though yeah. I, I do think that that's a lead performance. But sure, but I mean, grind. if you <laughs> if you've got a ballot to fill out, I think Brad Pitt's a safe choice for your ballot. Yeah. I would agree. I have my doubts about it. I think for one thing, it's 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 weird. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty strange film in some ways, you know. In it's some this ways, kind of languid, nearly three hour hangout movie. But it's also all about how awesome the 50s and 60s were in Hollywood and You're a right. lot of people that worked in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s vote for Oscar. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. That's very true. And, and actors make up the largest branch of yeah. the Academy and this is a movie that loves actors yeah. to, to, to their bone. Yeah, you know? I just <laughs> I just think it's a great combination of like spectacle and subject matter, both in ways that really appeal to the average Oscars voter. So. Tarantino has never won Best Picture or Best Director before. Oh. Uh, he was up for, uh, very famously in 1994, right. uh, Pulp Fiction was up for Best Picture, lost to Forrest Gump. Yep. That was sort of seen as one of the last great Best Picture fights that really felt like a battle of contrasting values. Mm -hmm. You know, It was like all the, the cynicism and sarcasm and cool of the 90s versus this kind of uh, sentimental, yeah. pro-Americana 
piece of yeah. like Hollywood blockbuster, mm -hmm, basically. Mm -hmm. um, he was also up for Best Picture with uh, Glorious Bastards. Yep. And then again with uh, Django Unchained. Right. And basically, and, if his movie's a huge hit, it tends to get into the Best Picture race. Uh -huh. you know? and, well, he sells up every screenplay award he's uh, nominated for. He wins he screenplay has won, all the time. He, he's won Best Original Screenplay twice mm -hmm. at this point, um, which is uh, is a feat that not too many too many writers or, yeah. or writer-directors can claim. So I think if Tarantino is ever going to win Best Picture, I think this is his best shot. I think so, too. And I think that you're right that it being a film about Hollywood helps it a lot. I mean, we've seen that. Even in the last few years, mm -hmm. we've seen you know uh, Birdman won. Exactly. I mean, picture. remember the artist? The artist. Yep. Argo is even kind of a Hollywood film. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Hollywood filmmakers saving the world. That's yep. sort of thing. Uh huh. Know? So I think it does have a shot. Um, I think that 1917 is going to win this picture. Ah, uh, because of that Globes momentum. It's not just the Globes. Okay. Um, I mean, so it's won at this point. It's now won the Directors Guild Award. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Producers Guild Award. Ooh, yeah. And the BAFTA, and the Golden Globe. Mm, that's a lot of pieces lining up. In it it is, and the thing about it is that like the Academy is made up of people who also vote for those awards. Right. So you, if you look at it, like there are members of the Directors Guild that are in the Academy, the Producers Guild, the the, the British Academy. There are members of that that are also in 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 the the American Academy. Right. All of those people have voted and said. We like 1917. Right. So you also have to take into account the preferential ballot. Yeah, this sounds uh, really complicated. It is complicated, <laughs> and I'm no expert on it. <laughs> so it's possible I'll screw something up about this. But um, the idea is that for a film to win Best Picture now, it has to be number one on more than, I think, half the ballots. So what happens is you go through that first round of voting. They're, right. they're voting on nine films. Right. If one of those films in that first round isn't both number one and also number one on more than 50 of the 50 percent of the ballots okay so if it isn't the clear favorite right. right so what happens then is that you you basically they have to start cutting off films at the bottom mm. and they keep voting until something gets over that threshold oh really on, yes so, so do the oscar voters kind of have an idea then of what's going to win ahead of time because they no not necessarily i mean yeah. the, the point is that they they all vote uh -huh. and, and if if the film isn't on isn't number one on more than 50% of the right. ballots, then you start cutting things off the bottom. Well, you the said they vote the again. Number of votes. Right, so. So they go back to the membership and have So let's say Ford v. Ferrari is the, is, is the low. Right. In, in that first vote. Right. They all vote for best picture. Ford v. Ferrari, it's basically at the bottom in okay. terms of votes. So what happens is they then lose Ford v. Ferrari, and then they vote on eight. Films. Oh. And you keep doing that. And the Ford v. Ferrari team hangs their heads. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think we ever, we don't usually find out how many rounds these things go. Okay, interesting. But I, I, this feels to me like a year where we could get multiple rounds because I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of affection for several of these films. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. I don't know how it benefits or, or, or hurts something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. I don't know how much, uh, I don't know if there's a, a group of people out there who are going to rank that last. Because mm -hmm. everybody ranks their ballot, basically. It's not right. just, this is my vote. It's, here's my full ranking of the nine. Right. Um, so I do see it hurting something like Joker. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because that one is pretty divisive. It is. Yeah. And, but how the question then becomes, how much is that divisiveness us being in a film critic bubble? Because right, people, exactly. Because people love... A lot of people love Joker. Yeah. A lot of industry professionals love it. I mean, it's something you have to consider about the Academy too is that this is an organization who a big I think a big goal 
of these awards every year is not necessarily to celebrate the best piece of art, but the one that makes the industry look the best. You <laughs> totally. Know? It's a bunch of industry well, professionals that's voting what I, on, That's you know. what I mean when I say they love movies about movies, you right. know? Stuff that casts their industry in a positive light. Right, And Joker exactly. does seem to be quite popular amongst it got 11 industry it's, people. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's the nomination leader this year. Right. So there is a lot of love for it. Do you think there's a chance that it'll win Best Picture? I do think there's a chance. Hmm. I think it's, um, I do think that ultimately the preferential ballot will hurt it. Yeah. Um, because I just think that either you are pretty gung-ho for this movie or it's going to be probably pretty lower on, on, right. on your ranking. And then it'll get cut off. There doesn't appear to be a lot of middle ground on Joker, even though I no. do occupy the middle ground <laughs> on it. It's not Me even too. my least favorite of, the, of the Best Picture nominees. I think there might be a subtle gradation between our grades, but it would be like a B minus C plus right, thing. Exactly. It's not a huge difference. <laughs> I am very... I love Parasite, as we just discussed, but I'm very pessimistic about its chances at the Oscars. I think it's great it got the nominations, but I, I don't think it's going to win Best Picture, like, at all. I don't think it will either, but it, the pundits seem to think that it is a real challenge. Really? A real challenger here, yes. It's such an uphill battle. But, yeah, and I would like to remind you of last year, where right. a lot of us doing this, playing, playing odds makers here, genuinely thought that Roma was going to win Best Picture. Right. And you look back at it now and you think, like, how naive were we that we thought that this 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 foreign language film, this film from Mexico in black and white. On Netflix. <laughs> yeah, there on is Netflix, some prejudice exactly, against on Netflix. Netflix. I think exactly it's hurt right. the Irishman a little bit. I think you're right. I think the Irishman has had kind of a magnificent movie, in my opinion, yep. has had kind of a shaky award season. It's showing up a lot, but it's not winning many things. Right, exactly. And, and I think there are some people in the film industry in particular who just hate Netflix and everything associated right. with it, even if it is a Scorsese picture. Yep. Which I understand. I mean, it's it's Netflix is theoretically endangering some people's jobs in some ways. Sure. I mean, it, it, is, uh, it is cutting into into the theatrical market in yeah. some ways. Yeah, you know? and people in the film industry hated television when it came out. Too. <laughs> it's exactly right, yeah. So it sort of feels like fool me once, shame on you, fool right. me twice, shame on me. Uh, I do think that Parasite is in a lot of ways a much more populist film than Roma was. Mm -hmm. I think Roma is an art movie in a lot of respects. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, it's deliberately paced, it, 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 you know, it, it was in black and the white. black and white, yeah. yeah I mean, it, that, that is a movie that, that wears its artfulness on its sleeve. Mm -hmm. Parasite is fun. Yeah. You know, it's I a mean, crowd it's, pleaser. It's also artistically done, but it is. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very, very well made and, yeah. and, and, and beautifully made. Uh, but it's a blast, too. And mm -hmm. I think that, uh, I don't think it can, that can be undersold in terms of its success. I just wonder if the, like, I like this movie because it's fun crowd might overlap with the I'm not going to watch this movie because I don't read subtitles crowd. <laughs> very possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would love to see it win, even though it's not. Uh, necessarily my favorite of the nominees. So mm -hmm. uh, it is your favorite. Yeah. You yeah. would like to see Parasite win. Yeah, although I'd be yeah. equally happy with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. As we discussed on our film club episode, it's a movie that my affection for it grows every day. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I actually think there are there are no less than five films that I would be happy to see win Best Picture. Yeah, it's a pretty good yeah. pretty good range overall. Yeah. I would uh, Parasite would be great. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I, I would like. Little Women mm -hmm. is very uh, good. Little Women would be great. I don't think that has a snowball's chance in hell. Unfortunately, um, no. Gerwig not getting a Best Director nomination, I think, kind of seals that. Yeah, but I wonder how her chances are for adapted screenplay. I, I think don't, they're solid. You think so? But I think she could lose to Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, I think so too. Watiti just won the the Writers Guild Award mm -hmm. for Best Adapted Screenplay. Even though, I mean, I don't know. 
maybe it's overly simplistic, but I feel like you can articulate why Little Women was a good adaptation, yeah. which is something you can't always do. And in my mind, I think that that puts it at the head of the pack. So That does bring up the question, though. I don't want to get too off track here, but that does bring up the question of what best adapted screenplay is. Sure. Is it the best adaptation, the best act of a adapting something? Or is it just the best script that happens to be adapted from something else? Uh, I think if you're going to make the distinction, then, like, the actual adaptation of the work should go into it. Yeah, and and on those grounds, I think Little Women uh, is probably the best of the nominees. Yeah, far and away. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, those three uh, I would be happy with, but I think for me, my heart really belongs to the, uh, to two Netflix films <laughs> uh, that we paired earlier in the year. Yeah. I, 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 the two that I sort of feel the strongest about are mm -hmm. Marriage Story and The Irishman. Mm -hmm. I think that um, two films with very different values, but uh, I think both of those, those are my favorite two movies of the year. Yeah. I would be really excited to see either of those win, even if I know that uh, Parasite winning means more. Right, yeah. Culturally. And, and yeah, I'm gonna go with Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because like I said, those, as, as things shake out, you know, something that comes up and I think about a lot is the way, like, you just kind of the cycle of the film year mm -hmm. and as critics, you know, you see something at a festival and then you see it in theaters and then you talk about it in award season and how like your relationship with the film can evolve. And I felt consistent about Parasite the whole time that yeah. I think it's great. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has kind of grown in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I think those would be the two that I would, I'd be really happy to see either of those win. Sure. I won't go point for point why I love Marriage Story and The Irishman. Mm -hmm. I will just say that for me, both of those represent um, uh, I said earlier that they don't share the same values, but in one respect, I think they do share similar values, which is that both those films to me feel like a return to an era when uh, American uh, American movies were for adults. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. where we had we were where, where we existed at a time where there were these these larger American movies that were for grown-ups. Yeah. And uh, you know, The Irishman is a three and a half hour drama that really benefits from being watched, despite its Netflix release, that really asks, I think that, I've seen it on, on the big screen three times, mm -hmm. and I would see it again on yeah. the big screen. Yeah. I think it really benefits from being seen in one fell swoop. Yeah, um, it's, it, a, it's a cumulative experience. You oh, know? it 100% is. The, yeah. the, the trick that they pull off with the way that the tone builds is just masterful. Totally. And with Marriage Story, it just reminded me of a time in which I was not alive, but it reminded <laughs> me of an era when, when you had these American filmmakers sort of competing with uh, a time when foreign language films would make decent money in America, sure. and you had these American filmmakers actually competing with them for that market, you know, yeah. uh, like like the era when like uh, when Fellini and Bergman were were selling out screenings in New York, mm -hmm. and you had somebody like Woody Allen who was um, a. a pre-scandal Woody Allen, of course. Sure, of course, yeah. <laughs> I, Bombach actually reminds More innocent me of... days, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to me, like, I watch something like Marriage Story and I think that he's sort of carrying the torch of that particular era in American movies. Well, I think all the movies that we've been talking about, you know, positively <laughs> here, uh, you know, uh, Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman, Marriage Story, Little Women, all of them are those directors doing what they do best. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask uh, what you would be most disappointed if it won Best Picture? Hmm. I mean, like, I don't hate Joker, but I would be disappointed to see it win because to me it would just be like, okay, we do live on the dumbest possible timeline. <laughs> I got to go with Jojo Rabbit. Oh, okay. I just think it's the least successful on its own terms. Yeah. And it's funny, when I saw that at Toronto, I immediately was like, oh, that's winning Best Picture. 
Oh, man. <laughs> what like, a cynical thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it was the audience award winner at TIFF, yeah. just like last year's That's winner true. Green Book. That's true. Um, the momentum seems to have shifted away from it, thankfully. Mm -hmm. It has not won any major prizes leading no. up to Oscar night. I don't think it's going to win now. I Please don't prove me wrong, Academy. <laughs> All right, thanks everybody. I think that sews up our Oscars coverage for this year on Film Club, but Alex and I will be live vlogging the Oscars the night of, so you can hear all of our hot takes as they come out. <laughs> uh, and until then, please rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you listen to your podcasts, and we will join you again next week. Thanks everybody.